This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Brain Matters. This is Matt Davis. And Anthony Lacanina. Whoa. Hey, dude. Where have you been? I've been hiding in the back this whole time. <laughs> Great. Glad you can uh, join me for my intro today. Can you tell me what, what's going on? Yeah, dude. So I talked to uh, Dr. Marina Wolf. She's a professor and chair of the Department of Neuroscience at the Chicago Medical School at Roslyn Franklin University of Medicine and Science. Cool. What is uh, what you guys talk about? So she's an expert in the neurobiological underpinnings of drug addiction. Can you tell me a little bit about what drug addiction is and what do we know how the brain reacts to drugs? All right, drug addiction. You you know, so there's a lot of drugs out there. There's uh, we can start. We can name examples: cocaine. We have methamphetamine. We have heroin. All these different things, and they have specific effects on the brain and they have very acute effects on specific parts uh, over time certain people um, could become addicted and these people whose brains are addicted they're associated with certain changes uh, certain changes in the brain and we can model these changes and study them and hopefully determine what is actually happening in the brain okay so when you take a drug What's going on? Um, is is there any place that we can focus on uh, that's really important to where all these different kinds of drugs sort of like uh, converge? So classically, we always think of like the reward circuit, which is a specific part of the brain, which a lot of drugs of abuse actually act on. Classically, the it starts in the ventral tegmental area, and there's a projection to this area called the nucleus accumbens. And the neurons that connect those, we often talk about, are the dopamine neurons, which release dopamine in the nucleus accumbens from the ventral tegmental area. And this is kind of the classic reward circuit. We, we talk about that in the context of motivation and pleasure and whatnot. There's other neurons, actually, that, are in, that can be found in this area, in, in the nucleus accumbens specifically. Other types of neurons and synapses here. There's what we call glutamatergic neurons, which are neurons that provide fast excitatory transmission, um, but they're not necessarily of this dopamine type. Okay, so the nucleus accumbens is receiving dopamine inputs, and it's also receiving glutamate inputs at the same time. So we got two players here. So it's it's getting complicated. What uh, what does Doctor Wolf study, and what has she found? about how drugs affect your brain and affect these different kinds of uh, glutamate and dopamine uh, transmission. So she uses this interesting model of drug addiction, or specifically a, a period after drug addiction during withdrawal. This model is called incubation to cocaine withdrawal. So what this is modeling is after the addiction has been set and the drug is withdrawn, there's actually a period of time where cues associated with the drug will elicit craving for the drug. Um, but if you wait uh, a longer period of time from withdrawal, that craving actually gets stronger. And this is the, what the incubation refers to. This craving gets stronger. So we can model this in, in animals and, and show that, yes, they will perform 
certain tasks to get the drug in response to cues that were previously paired with it. So they'll they'll work harder to get that drug the longer it's been since they've last had that drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's essentially what she shows. And there's a lot of really interesting neurobiological changes that happen associated with the development of this incubation to cocaine withdrawal paradigm. Oh, so after the period, in this waiting period, basically, there's all these changes that are happening in the brain? Yeah, exactly. There's all these uh, uh, plasticity changes specifically at these glutamatergic synapses in the nucleus accumbens. In the interview, we talk about there's really interesting receptors that change in the postsynaptic area in the nucleus accumbens. There's actually two different main classes of receptors that glutamate can act on. There's uh, the metabotropic glutamate receptors and the ionotropic glutamate receptors. Are you sort of aware of metabotropic versus ionotropic? Well, you know. Of course I am. Oh, I, I, I know you I, and are. And our I don't mean to insult are, you. Our listeners are, but let's just refresh everyone's memory. What is ionotropic versus metabotropic? So ionotropic receptors are, uh, these proteins are situated in the membrane of, of neurons. In the context of glutamate receptors, they can bind glutamate and they will undergo a conformation change. And when this conformation changes, there's all of a sudden uh, a pore opens. This allows current to flow. This is the ionotropic, This right? is the so, ionotropic case. So glutamate, you, glutamate binds, causes opening of these receptors, and then you get a... a current flowing current across flowing. the membrane. Yeah. Uh, metabotropic glutamate receptors are a little bit different. Um, they're still a binding to this protein, which is situated in the membrane but it doesn't necessarily cause pore opening and current to flow. Metabotropic receptors are coupled to G proteins intracellularly. And so when there's a binding of the ligand to the receptor, this causes an interaction leading to all sorts of different cascade of signaling molecules. So it's not a direct current flow. It's a, a change in the signaling cascade in the cell. It's a lot slower than ionotropic transmission, um, but it li- leads to a lot of interesting things. It could li- lead to a lot of different intracellular processes. So we got, there's a fast ionotropic response that glutamate works through, and then a slower, more diverse set of effects that can happen through these metabotropic. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's doing both at the same time. Yeah, the, sa- the same on- molecule being released at the synapse glutamate can have uh, different effects depending on what receptors are in the membrane. Situation of the event, I guess. So in the case of glutamate, the classic ionotropic receptor is AMPA. And the metabotropic case, there's they call them MGLURs, which stands for metabotropic glutamate receptor. Dr. Wolf discovered some interesting things related to MGLUR1. So we'll hear a lot about how MGLUR1 is related to a specific type of AMPA receptor. So there's this interesting combo between the metabotropic and the ionotropic glutamate receptors. Well, I'm really excited to hear this interview with, between you and Dr. Wolf. Yeah, man. So uh, perk up those cochlea and let's get to it. Oh, my cochlea are nice and perked. <laughs> I'm not going to put that in there. <laughs> So I'd like to start off just, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, what was the environment like there growing up? 
I grew up in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Wauwatosa is a suburb of Milwaukee. It's not nearly as backwards as it sounds, but my mom was a, a calculus teacher and my dad was a brewmaster at Schlitz. This was back in the day when most of the big breweries were housed in Milwaukee. Sure, yeah. So not exactly academic, but, but certainly no push to become a scientist or go into medicine, you know. Did you see, is there things in, in your childhood or high school where there was some spark where, hey, the science thing is pretty cool and something I may want to pursue? I think the real root, although I didn't recognize it at the time, was Star Trek. And I mean the original series, not the, you know, subsequent ones. But Sure. Yeah, so I mean, I, I would come home and, you know, if Star Trek was on, I was a happy camper. And I, you know, I loved that series and I think that... I'm not the only one whose imagination was just so completely expanded by, you know, by that hour a day. So, but I, you know, I think what it made me want to do was be an astronaut. The problem is that I have, um, I don't have stereopsis, so I had a lazy eye when I was a kid. And so once I realized that I, you know, couldn't become an astronaut, I had to cast around for something else. And, and it wasn't until I was in college and I took a biopsychology course basically to fulfill a distribution requirement because I was a biochemistry major and it was in the psychology department and that was my first introduction to neuroscience and it was the first time I remember being in a science course and just thinking wow this is so cool like I was always good at science but I was never so excited by it and it was a really charismatic professor and you know I did well in the class I started working in his lab you know as kind of an undergraduate slave and um, that was Arya Rutenberg uh, and that was the beginning. Sort of curious, do you have particular favorite Star Trek episodes or? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. You just Not that I care to divulge. Okay, yes. Okay. Yes. No problem. I read a lot of science fiction too. Yeah. You know, Arthur Clarke and Asimov. Asimov and, yeah. and, and others. But. What sort of stuff were you working on in undergrad? A learning and memory. Yeah. Um, uh, with Aria. So that's always been the thrust of his lab. Um, but it wasn't, I think at that point, we weren't so um, conscious even of the big picture because there was so much to learn in the lab. Mm -hmm. So I think what, what the other undergraduates and I were mainly excited about is just being able to, you know, learn how to do a behavioral task with an animal or learn how to obtain the animal's brain and then do some analysis on that brain that would reflect what they'd learned. So just the ability to, to do something like that, which, you know, you never even would have had the vocabulary to dream about in high school was was just a lot of fun and we also liked the whole lab culture you know so if you've never worked in a lab you you know you think it's a bunch of super boring people that you know don't have any fun but it was totally the opposite like they had so much fun in the lab it was such a good group the postdocs were awesome the, the students and we had we just had a blast when you have undergraduates coming through, uh, or I guess currently you probably don't have undergraduates. No, we have medical students. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, a bit of a different breed. Well, I try, but I mean, the people who communicated that to us when we were undergraduates, they weren't the lab chiefs. They were the postdocs and the graduate students because, you know, the, the person who's running the lab is, is off taking care of much more boring business like writing grants, you know, to keep the whole enterprise sustained. And so... It's it's the younger people in every lab that that you know have that job. So, you know, I think my lab does a pretty good job of entertaining our medical students. And uh, and then you moved on uh, to graduate school at Yale. Yeah. So I I was in um, 
in this lab as an undergraduate, and then when I was a senior, I, I got a, a paid position in a lab uh, in, in the city in Chicago. The, the Northwestern Medical School is, is in the, the city, and the undergraduate is out in Evanston. And so that was just fun in itself because I got to take the train into the city every day. And I was still taking classes, of course, but I was taking a lot at night, and there were some. I, I was almost an English major. I, I mean, I love literature too, and so I remember taking really cool um, senior electives and in, in, in those types of things at night. And it was just a really different way to be living. But um, I was working in David U. Pritchard's lab when he was at um, at Northwestern, and so that was a, a great lab at the time. And I got a lot of good advice about what graduate program to apply for. You know. But I was still blown away when I was accepted by Yale uh, because Yale, you know, you just, I mean. Such a brand. Oh, wow. You know, no one from my family had done anything like that. And But I remember I was so naive that when the person who called me to say that I'd been accepted, now, now I realize was probably the administrator assistant in the Department of Pharmacology. But I thought it was like, the president of Yale or something. I mean, I was literally afraid to be on the phone with this woman. I was like, oh, you know, thank you. You know, and my voice was probably shaking. And, you know, it, but that turned out to be great, too. I, I made some of the, um, uh, some of my best friends of my whole life were made in those years at Yale. The My um, advisor uh, was Bob Roth. He's, um, you know, just a fantastic person. I couldn't have had a better mentor. And the group in the lab was was just a, a ton of fun. Um, we had a great time. We're still friends. We get together a lot. So good science too. I forgot the science. I keep forgetting the science. I'm well, what about the science? What sort of uh, topics were you working on in in your PhD work? Uh, so um, Bob's lab was interested in um, atypical antipsychotics. So these are antipsychotics that don't produce the um, severe motor side effects that are seen with the classical antipsychotics like haloperidol. And they were, I wouldn't say they were new at the time, but they were newer. And we were trying to understand their effects on um, dopamine neurons and on different populations of dopamine ne neurons that projected to different brain regions and had different properties. And so I was doing um, some neurochemistry to try to understand those, those questions. So it, I wasn't, I had no training in, in addiction. But later on, when I was uh, had my own lab, um, I was I happened to end up in a department where there were a bunch of addiction people, and I didn't have a a, a great um, startup package. That's like the nicest way I can say it. And so I was trying to do my own thing on the cheap, but I was also interested in collaborating with all the addiction researchers who were more senior and had a lot of resources. And but the, the prevailing idea at the time um, in the addiction field was that the adaptations that were driving and maintaining addiction were, were thought to all be occurring in the dopamine neurons. And what we'd been focusing on in studying antipsychotics back when I was a graduate student were all the homeostatic mechanisms that dopamine neuron ha neurons have. So they can uh, experience amazing changes to their, their cellular environment and yet keep their firing rate their activity within um, a pretty narrowly defined range. So, you know, to my mind, um, these are neurons that love the status quo, not instigators, you know, they're not the neurons that would create addiction. And so, so I was, I was, you know, a, a little bit uncomfortable with, with that view of addiction. And at the same time, this was in the 80s, I 
was keeping up with what was going on in the field of hippocampal LTP because one of my very best friends from graduate school, Julie Cower, was, was had done a postdoc with uh, Roger Nickel, who's you know of course a very prominent you know figure in LTP and and just because Julie and I were such close friends, we we talked about our science too, and so I'd read you know review articles about glutamate receptors. The NMDA receptor was being cloned. LTP was like going from a black box to something with a cellular mechanism, and it it just struck me as more reasonable for the brain to use, you know, a common set of cellular building blocks to achieve plasticity in all different kinds of situations. So in the hippocampus to use those mechanisms to achieve plasticity related to learning, but maybe in these circuits related to motivation and reward, you know, the same sorts of things might be leading to plasticity that underlies addiction. But that was a very unpopular view at the time because, you know, the field was very invested in dopamine. And so so I started asking questions like that, and, um, and it, it took a lot of um, years um, before that um, hypothesis was that, that it was glutamate-dependent plasticity that was enabling addiction was really um, yeah. accepted. Do you have a sense of why that dominated thinking in the field so much, this the dopamine circuit, or, or well, actually, there, there was a bunch of evidence for it. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't at all a crazy idea. It was just, and and I don't think anyone would 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 uh, question dopamine's central role in in um, in motivation and in initial responses and yeah. initial plasticity triggered by drug addiction and uh, drug exposure. Um, what I was was arguing was that some of the some of the long lasting changes in these these pathways that were triggered through mechanisms that certainly involve and are modulated by dopamine might come down to changes in synaptic strength and in, in, yeah. in the strength of glutamate synapses in these pathways, just as had been shown to um, be important for long-lasting plasticity relating to learning and memory. So we weren't trying to yeah. shut out dopamine at all. It was just that, you know, here's here's the, the, a way we already know the brain encodes, you know, um, long-lasting information. I bet it's happening here, too. Could you lay out how dopamine, I guess, classic, explicitly lay out how dopamine fits into the story of addiction? You know, what what is its role in the addictive process? Or so I think that dopamine is is now recognized, and this is work of Kent Barrage and Terry Robinson as as a transmitter that we should more properly speak of as being involved in in motivation or wanting or or um, uh, seeking seeking a goal. Um, rather than simple pleasure, it's really the, the opiates and others that are involved in, in pleasure per se. But that's as far as I'm going to go with touching that question because the answer to how dopamine and glutamate interact is de- depends on um, the brain region, the synapse within that brain region, the, 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 the type of drug exposure the animals had, the, the type of addictive drug um, that's, that's being discussed. So this is one of the the problems is that there's, you know, there's so much. Um, this is such a complex literature, um, but you know, addiction's pretty complex too. There aren't, there, there's not one phenotype of someone who's, you know, struggling with addiction. So, but dopamine is a modulator. It's a neuromodulator, right? It's setting the gain on the functioning of brain pathways. Whereas, by changing the strength of a glutamate pathway, you're doing a more direct uh, thing to 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 reset, to weaken, or strengthen the the. The, the throughput through that pathway. We're studying um, plasticity that is occurring um, a, a after you know three plus weeks 
of withdrawal. So we're three to four weeks out from the last time the animal saw cocaine. So in terms of a cocaine-induced elevation of dopamine levels, you know, and whatever plasticity that may produce, we're, we're quite removed from that. We think we're temporally, I mean, so the last time cocaine made dopamine levels go up in all of those regions was three, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. So what we think we're studying is synaptic plasticity at these glutamate synapses probably in response to changes in the activity of glutamate pathways coming into the accumbens, not necessarily some something that's that's directly relatable to a change in dopamine levels. Mm -hmm. And to do this, uh, you laid out this procedure uh, called incubation of cocaine withdrawal. Could you walk us through um, that procedure and, and what it shows you and typical results from that in terms of animal behavior and whatnot? The incubation of cocaine craving um, refers to the progressive increase in Q-induced cocaine seeking or craving that is observed in animal models of drug addiction. So this observation that, that craving could be higher after a period of withdrawal than, than in earlier withdrawal was actually made by a number of labs, including Janet Nieswander's lab and Yaveen Shaham's lab. Um, and then Yaveen went on to do a great deal to develop and, and further characterize this model. So we're basing our studies on Yaveen's work. And the way that, that the studies are done is that the animals are trained to self-administer um, a drug, such as cocaine, for six hours a day for 10 days. And during each training session, when the animal receives the drug, they also receive a cue, for example, a light, that they learn to associate with the drug. So during this 10-day training period, they learn that association very well, and they take a lot of cocaine. Then they go back to their home cage for different periods of withdrawal or abstinence. And what Yavin observed is that if he, if he took animals during the first few days of withdrawal, when you might imagine that, that craving would be very high, and put them back in the operant chamber where they had learned to self-administer drug, but now under conditions where responding delivers that cue, but not the drug itself. So this is used as a measure of cue-induced drug craving. And when he conducted this kind of test of cue-induced drug craving in early withdrawal, the animals showed less craving than they did if he conducted the same test after a month or so of withdrawal. So surprisingly, craving had increased or intensified or incubated during that first month or two of withdrawal. So he went on to show that that craving remained high compared to those first few days of withdrawal, three months and even six months after the last time that the animal was allowed to self-administer cocaine, which, first of all, rep represents the, the kind of very persistent vulnerability to relapse that my lab was interested in studying, but also is pretty amazing if you consider the fact that rats only live a couple of years, so six months of, you know, of, of, of high craving is really quite a significant um, behavioral plasticity to detect in, in this species. What was sort of the first clues about what may be going on underlying the, this behavioral phenotype that you observed? So we knew that in other animal models, drug seeking, in other words, you know, the animal emitting some behavioral response that's going to ultimately lead to a, the drug availability, depended on amperoceptor transmission 
in the nucleus accumbens. So the AMPA receptors are one of the major types of glutamate receptors. They're important for very fast excitatory transmission at synapses all around the brain. So knowing that blocking these receptors interfered with drug-seeking in a variety of animal models, we thought, well, maybe what's happening during withdrawal is that somehow the strength of these AMPA receptor synapses has been um, increased, and that's what's responsible for this intensified or incubated Q-induced cocaine craving that we see at long withdrawal times. Our, our hypothesis at the time was that we might see something like an increase in the number of AMPA receptors at these synapses. And in fact, we'd obtained evidence like that from simpler anim animal models of addiction. Instead of seeing increases in the number of the typical type of AMPA receptor that inhabits these synapses, we, we found evidence for a switch to an, an atypical um, type of AMPA receptor that has a number of, of properties that make it very interesting. So it, when these receptors are in the synapse, they, they, they provide a stronger activation of the postsynaptic cell when they're activated by glutamate. And they also uh, allow calcium to pass through um, a channel formed within the receptor. And calcium is very important for um, activating all kinds of signaling pathways and for eliciting many types of, of synaptic plasticity. So we what we obtained was evidence that we were going from the type of synapse, uh, sorry, AMPA receptor normal in these synapses, which doesn't pass calcium, which is um, composed mainly of um, subunits called GLUA1 and GLUA2. And what we were seeing after withdrawal was the addition of receptors that lacked this GLUA2 subunit. So they were composed entirely of the GLUA1 subunit. And as a result, they could pass calcium and, and they had higher conductance. So our hypothesis was correct in that we observed, uh, we found a mechanism that accounted for strengthening those synapses, and that seemed to track with the, you know, the, the stronger craving. But the synapses were being strengthened in a very different way than we had initially imagined. So it was a, a surprise and something very interesting to see. But around the same time we were doing this, this work, this was back in 2008, where the paper came out, a number of other forms of plasticity in um, some in very basic experiments where people were just looking at plasticity in brain slices, but also more recently in um, fear conditioning in a number of models and in other addiction models, different groups were describing changes in synaptic strength that were attributable to a to, to either removing or adding these calcium permeable AMPA receptors to synapses. So it seems to be one of these building blocks that I was talking about earlier that the brain can employ under certain conditions to strengthen a particular pathway or by taking them out to weaken a particular pathway. And, and then, so we've talked about the ionotropic glutamate receptors. The story gets a little more complicated when we consider uh, what's going on with the metabotropic glutamate receptors. Um, and how it's related to this model, and you've made some, uh, you've done some work on 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 that. Uh, could you tell us about that? Sure. So, so I I told you about the biochemical work that was involved in showing this shift towards these atypical homomeric GLUA1 calcium permeable AMPA receptors, and we followed the biochemical work with um, electrophysiological studies that were really what was needed to prove that these new receptors were. Um, strengthening these synapses and, you know, contributing to synaptic transmission in a more robust way after incubation of craving. And this work was all done in collaboration with Kwai Sang's lab, Kwai's in uh, uh, the Department of Pharmacology and Cellular and Molecular Pharmacology at my institution. And so 
as as we move forward from here, what I'm talking to you about is really a collaborative effort between uh, my lab and Koi's lab. And when we finished up the studies that that you know showed convincingly that these CP amp receptors were strengthening accumbent synapses, and that if we blocked them, we could weaken those synapses and also reduce Q-induced craving. We were really excited because we thought, well, this is a maybe a, a could could we take this concept and turn it into something translationally significant? But when we had done the initial study blocking these CPAMP receptors and reducing craving, we were doing so with a toxin that selectively blocks these receptors. So it's a great pharmacological tool, but it's not anything that will ever ever you know be be used in in people therapeutically. Yeah. Never, you know. So. What, what we were what we tried to do is think about a way a, a, another way that we could weaken these accumbent synapses by removing the calcium permeable AMP receptors and thereby reduce Q induced cocaine craving. And in some of these other examples of synaptic plasticity that I mentioned in other brain regions that involve these CP AMP receptors, um, investigators had found that they could stimulate another completely different class of glutamate receptors called the metabotropic glutamate receptors, and in particular this, this member of that receptor class called mGluR1, and remove CP-AMP receptors from synapses. So when, when these CP-AMP receptors are in the synapse, there's a, there is apparently some relationship to neighboring mGluR1 receptors so that when they're stimulated, they take the CP-AMP receptors out. So these mGluRs are, they're not ionotropic receptors like the AMP receptors. So ionotropic receptors are receptors that are formed by a bunch of subunits, and by coming together they create a channel that current can pass through. And so when the receptor is activated by glutamate, there's a conformational shift, the channel opens up, and current very quickly throws, flows through it and activates the postsynaptic cells. So that's why the AMP receptors are so important in fast excitatory transmission, you know, so in movement, you know, all kinds of things. These mGluRs are G-protein coupled receptors, so they, they, they're not associated with a channel. They're a single protein in the membrane that can interact with different intracellular signaling molecules and produce much slower responses in the postsynaptic cell. And it's, it's through a cascade like that that this mGluR1 receptor is able to trigger the endocytosis of the CP-AMP receptors. And we're still working out um, the details of that cascade. But an important point is because these, these mGluRs are not the the main workhorse in the synapse that's, you know, that's driving excitatory synaptic transmission, not just in reward circuits, but also in, in the motor system and, you know, in the thalamus, every, you know, everywhere. You can, you can tinker with the level of excitatory transmission through these modulatory mGluRs. You know, you, you might be able to tone things up or down rather than um, block AMP receptors or stimulate AMP receptors, which you'd, you'd, you'd worry would have you know, horrible side effects all over the brain. So the idea of, of, of targeting these mGluRs you know, is, is, is a therapeutically more reasonable than targeting ionotropic receptors. So we're really excited about this strategy. And I'm jumping ahead of myself again, but what we found was that, in fact, if we did stimulate mGluR1, whether we did it by sticking a drug directly into the brain or using um, systemically active drugs that we could give animals, int intact awake animals, that also activate mGluR1, 
we could produce the same effect. We could remove the CP receptors from the synapses of these incubated animals, and we could reduce Q-induced cocaine craving. Those um, results were published in Nature Neuroscience last year. So now, you know, well, the lab is going in a lot of different directions, but one thing I'm committed to is trying to um, see what I can do um, to move um, mGluR1 positive allosteric modulators, that's the class of compounds that we use to elicit these effects, um, forward as potential um, therapeutics for um, addiction. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to talk to um, people at NIDA who are interested in medications development and see what we can do to encourage them to take a look at this, at this potential um, therapy. This isn't going to cure addiction. I mean, but I think that many addicts are able to achieve abstinence and would love to have something in their back pocket that they could take, you know, as the need arose to maintain abstinence for a little bit longer. For example, if they anticipated going, you know, back to a, a place or visiting a person that, they, that they've come to associate with, um, with drug taking, you know, that place or person could be a cue that would, you know, con possibly precipitate relapse and taking one of these mGluR1 positive allosteric modulators prior to that sort of encounter, you know, might, this would be our, our hypothesis, just maybe dampen down that level of Q-induced craving enough that the, the person might be able to stay abstinent. So that's the hope. It would be like a prophylactic. But I want to make it clear that, you know, the problem is that, you, you know, you can do a lot of work in rats and whether it's going to translate into the clinic is always a, a big, big question. So I'm very excited about this. I think it has a lot of potential. But we're only at the very, very early, early, super beginning stages of, of seeing whether this is something that, you know, that could really prove useful. Is there already some work out there using uh, any of these mGlobar modulators in humans? Is there... Is there some clinical trials, uh, whether it be group one, two, or three? But yeah, there there has been. Um, so initially, people were more interested in um, a different family of of mGluRs, possibly for schizophrenia. And I think that um, the, I, the, I don't believe that those trials have been um, successful. Um, as far as the group one mGluRs go, there's interest in um, using them as cognitive enhancers. So that. Um, you know, certainly wouldn't wouldn't hurt addicts either. Because, yeah. You know, you know, so it could be a, a double good thing. But I don't think that they've been seeing. You know, well, I I mean, there haven't been large scale trials yet. But but so far, I don't know of any results that have come out that you know that suggested that there would be some you know horrible toxicity that would just preclude further development of these drugs. So I think it you know it, it's it still looks possible. Say all of a sudden you get a letter from NIH or NIDA saying they just want to give you all the money that you need <laughs> <laughs> to pursue the next, you know, five to ten years of your research. What sort of questions would you would you be asking, you know, if you had unlimited resources? Unlimited resources. Okay. Well, I think that the data we get are, are really only as good as our animal models. So one thing that I would like to do with unlimited resources is move into um, rodent models that better capture, um, if possible, the human situation. Um, one drawback of the way that, that most people, including me, do, do our work is that our animals have very little choice. And there are um, labs out there, um, the Ahmed lab, for example, that are trying to incorporate more choice into um, into dr drug drug experiments, um, 
so that an animal is in an environment where the, the only game in town isn't a lever that you know that delivers cocaine. More of a realistic, uh, environmentally more of a, an environmentally yeah. realistic you know situation yeah. for the, in which you could study drug taking behavior. Um, I think that there are, there are also some groups, um, Piazza Lab in, in Bordeaux, and, and others as well, but who've been working with, with um, animal models in which the animals take drugs for a very, very, very long time. And they see a subset of animals, a fraction of them, over time begin to exhibit some characteristics that model addiction um, pretty well. So, you know, for example, they'll continue to take drug even if it's paired with a punishment and things like that. Yeah. So there are, there are great animal models out there, but, but think about it. What if, you know, you have a graduate student who has to generate um, 100 rats to get 10 that show the desired, you know, plasticity that, that you know, they're, they're setting out to study. For one experiment. And, and for one experiment. And what if you couldn't identify those animals in advance? You know, I mean, this becomes a, just a super difficult logistical problem. So that's one direction I would go, is I would, I would look into better animal models. As I talked about, um, though, I'm also, like, really excited right now about the role of protein translation in maintaining these, these adaptations. So... This is a new finding that if we interrupt protein translation even for an hour, we can normalize a lot of the changes that we found at the synapses and the accumbens of these incubated animals. So that's really amazing. It suggests that 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 something happening on on the time scale of an hour, that proteins being translated, you know, that rapidly in an ongoing way are necessary to maintain these synaptic adaptations. So to me, that's mind-blowing. And Which seems counter. This, the, the effect is so stable and long-term. Yeah, right. But when you look in the acute, you can yeah. knock it out really quickly. You know? by, by interrupting translation. Yeah, yeah. So, but this is, this is what I love about science. Is, yeah. You know, we got this completely unexpected result. So we were not trying to, say, to ask that question. Does tra this translation, ongoing translation, required to maintain these adaptations? That question never would have even occurred to me. What we were trying to do is, is characterize the LTD that we were eliciting with mGlor1 positive allosteric modulators. And one question you can ask about LTD is whether or not it's protein translation dependent. Many forms are, for example, in the hippocampus. And so all we were doing was the control part of that experiment where you'd put in a protein synthesis inhibitor alone before applying an activator of the mGluRs. And, you know, it, we, we expected really to see nothing too interesting. It was supposed to be the control. And instead, we saw, you know, everything revert back to normal. So it was a big surprise and made me become so curious about mechanisms that regulate translation in the accumbens. And I'd say a fair amount of my career has represented realizing that, that people are beginning to understand something in the hippocampus or the cortex and how it relates to learning and memory, or, or at least to LTP, a model of those processes, and saying, wow, I wonder how that translates over to the reward circuitry and what's happening you know, in, in circuits related to motivation when animals take drugs. And so uh, this is the same, same deal now. It was, you know, earlier on in my career, I was, became curious about AMP receptors and how they traffic around neurons based on work coming out of LTP labs. Now, you know, you look at um, labs um, that are studying the regulation of translation in hippocampus, in learning models, in fragile X um, syndrome, 
And there's so much information come out of that work about how translation is regulated. And we, we just have no idea how much of that applies to the accumbens. And so it's, it's been so much fun for me to start reading that literature, you know, start making a, a laundry list of, of what we don't know at all. Forget about addiction, but just about how this really important brain region works and, and start trying to learn the methods that people use to, to study translation. Think about how we can, you know, set those up in my lab. So we've been working on that for the past six months and it's just been a lot of fun. I think if people like doing science, this is something they really can you know, get into is, is, you know, you read about a new method, you know, and you're like, wow, we could set that up, you know, how could we do that, you know, and that's been um, just a blast. So, you know, we don't have a lot of answers yet, but um, just, just but finding new questions. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and, and it certainly keeps me entertained, um, because I really enjoy, you know, reading about uh, uh, related, but, but distinct work, and then, you know, kind of mining that for ideas that I can move into the addiction field. Yeah, and why not? I mean, the biology has a finite set of processes to accomplish some task. Yeah. And why not replicate that in, in several different contexts, you know? Well, and the, and the devil's always in the details. You know, it's not going to be exactly the same. I mean, just to give you one reason why I say that, in the in the hippocampus and the cortex, the principal cell in those regions, they're, they're glutamatergic pyramidal cells. Um, in the accumbens, the, the principal cell type is, is a GABA neuron. It's a, 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 you know, a, a projection neuron, but it's a GABA neuron. So that's a fundamental difference right there. And there's also in a slice or in the intact animal, you know, across the whole spectrum, a lot of synaptic activity occurring in the hippocampus or the cortex, whereas the accumbens, these cells are normally very silent. So they're sitting at a very hyperpolarized membrane potential, and it really takes, you know, according to some work that's been done, coincident activation from a couple of different glutamatergic um, pathways, say cortex and hippocampus, to, you know, to stir these cells and get them to um, enter a state where they can fire action potential. So we're, we're, we're in a, you know, it's a, it's a different neighborhood. And the rules may, may, may be somewhat different. Is there anything else, sort of, I guess, in your in your professional life that uh, you're passionate about, closely related to science? Or uh, well, um, I really like training yeah. students and postdocs. I enjoy mentoring, and I certainly, you know, I'm enthusiastic about efforts to increase diversity in science. You know, whether that's racial diversity or gender, you, you know, you name it. I think, though, that a lot of the problems that are facing scientists, young scientists today, are gender-blind. You know, they're, they're, it's just that the, the, the NIH is, you know, because you could use more money. Um, it's difficult to get grants. There, there aren't, you know, as, as many jobs as we all wish there were for the young people who are coming out. So I think that I worry more across the board about just young scientists, you know, whatever they may look like, you know, rather than I do these days about any particular. Um, do you have advice group. for those young scientists? Well, I mean, to to persist um, if they love it, you know, because um, there are many success stories, and you know, I really enjoy what I do. I I, th I think I'm very lucky to be to be 
allowed to, you know, to do something like this for a living. You know, I, I have a lot of fun, and it's it's challenging, and it's interesting, and I meet all kinds of people, and I get to be on a podcast, you know, which is going to just Not kill my kids, you know. I can't wait till they... We're no cereal, this, you know, but... So. No, but this is pretty good, so... Um, but, but I... Uh, advice i mean i think you also have to be open-minded and you know look at look at other things that um just have all the alternatives in your mind be realistic going into graduate school um but this is not especially profound advice you know this is what everybody tells Um, but it's important yeah it is important you know but uh just to wrap up i was curious are you able um, outside of your science life to pursue other hobbies or (laughs) yeah um so I, I kind of vaguely remember having hobbies before I had children. You know, it definitely is a challenge to to have kids and you know and keep your career on track. Um, but uh, I think many women of my era have done it. You know, not without difficulty sometimes. But for me, I enjoyed both aspects of life so so much and um, just learned to for me what worked was really to compartmentalize so when I was with my kids I was only thinking about my kids when I was at work I was only thinking about work you know that said you know they there's not uh, time for hobbies too you know I mean unless it's the occasional you know moving around a perennial in my garden or, or reading a novel or but nothing more you know intense than that I don't wake up and go mountain biking on Sunday morning, you know, before I, I mean, you know, but now my kids are um, uh, 20 and 23. And uh, so maybe, you know, maybe I can discover a late life um, hobby. I have an awesome dog. Uh, We hang out together and hike. And um, so we'll see. There's, there's hope for me, you know. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you for chatting with us today. All right. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I always wanted to be on NPR and say that. Right? Isn't that how they always finish? They certainly do. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You got it. You've got that sound bite now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.